And I remember just saying, I wrote a journal entry. Like I took like five days off drinking. I was like, I feel so much healthier. I feel better. I feel clear headed, blah, 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 blah. And that was on a Friday. And I said, all right, I'm going to get a box of wine and I'm going to drink one glass as like a reward to myself for being able to stay sober for this week. Like I deserve it. It's Friday. And I literally do not remember the next two weeks of my life. Um, I hope I cracked that box of wine. I had one led to another and I don't remember what happened for two weeks. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the Functional Diagnostic Nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com, but for now, here is today's episode. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. My name is Evan Transu, aka Detective Ev, and I will be your host for today's show. We're switching it up a little bit today, but I am nearly positive that every single person in our audience can get something from this episode. Otherwise, I would not have brought this individual on. This is not someone who overcame anything using functional medicine or any type of natural medicine, to be honest. So that is not only a difference on our show, I think that's the first time it's ever been featured in 200-something episodes. So why the heck am I bringing him on? What are we doing here? The reason I'm bringing this guy on is because I saw a post of his, and I realized what he is doing is something that will help a lot of people, and what he has been through and the way he went through it is something that affects all of us, either directly or indirectly. Like, if you know more than 10 people, this absolutely, at the very least, affects you indirectly. And we're going to be talking about legitimate addiction and substance abuse today. Matt Leonard was someone that I went to high school with. We never said a word to each other. So I don't want you to think this is some biased thing where I'm like friends with this guy and we hang out all the time. I have seen him one time in person, uh, other than maybe walking past each other in the hallway, but we had a class of 500 kids almost at the high school that I went to. And because of this, it wasn't particularly unheard of to like not know someone or not talk to someone throughout all of high school. And we saw each other one time after that at a meeting that a mutual friend was hosting. And I, I think I like shook his hand, talked to him for a few minutes. But I always just want to be clear that never am I bringing someone onto the show because I know them. I do bring on people that I know, but it's because they have something else going on. Maybe they went through FDN, maybe they're into health, um, or maybe they're into what Matt's into today. I just, we're a health show. And mental health issues are obviously a huge part of this. Now, addiction qualifies as a mental health issue. So even though this might not be a story today about someone overcoming things with functional health, I felt very inclined to put it on. If you guys really don't want me ever putting something like this on again, just shoot us a message on Instagram at FDN training and, and we won't do things like this. It's not going to be every month. It's not even going to be every few months. But for right now, I think it's too important. I've heard too many stories, especially after the pandemic, of family struggling, not fully getting the perspective of someone who goes through this, or 
having someone like Matt in their life or being someone like Matt where he never really had these issues even at a young age. He's one of the statistically rarer people that developed this at an older age, not that old, but like older than teenage years, that's for sure. It's a powerful story. It's really powerful insight, and I'm so excited to see what he's doing. I hope that you guys, uh, after you listen, go throw him a follow if you feel so inclined to do it, or just show him some support. Let him know that the episode helped you in some way if it did. Without further ado, let us get to today's episode. All right. Hello there, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on to the Health Detective Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Good, this is um this is an interesting one, guys. And I know I feel like I say this every other time, but one, I do think they're all interesting. Uh, but two, this is actually uniquely interesting, and I think that'll become very evident uh pretty quickly if it hasn't already, just by the title of this one today. So we're not talking to someone who necessarily went through like an autoimmune disease or cancer or some of the things that we normally talk about. But one of the things we do talk about on here is the mental health side. And a lot of the times, like that's a huge part of my story, I overcame these things using functional medicine. But one thing that we have not really dove into in like huge depth is addiction and the many things that can come with that. So Matt and I, this is what's weird because we're from the same hometown. I don't even, do we even talk in high school? Like I can't picture us having a conversation. It's really funny, actually. I was literally thinking about that like thirty minutes ago. I was. It's crazy how life works. Whereas, like, we literally went to the same high school. Like, there's a chance yeah. we were sitting in the same class together, but I don't think we ever said a word to each other. We were in yeah. completely different social groups. Um, and you, almost ten years later, uh, life finds a way of bringing us back, and we're having a conversation together today. So I yeah, no, and really I'm glad to just see both of us at this point are doing really well. Because I mean, in high school, I just. I can't picture you, but I wasn't an approachable character. Like I was in my own head. I was struggling with my own stuff, substance wise, mental health wise. And I got the shaved head, no beard. Like I actually look more approachable with this than without it. I kind of just looked like a not friendly person. So, um, you know, things have worked out very well. And I, if I'm not mistaken, where we got brought together is through Casey, but were you at the accountability club thing? Is that what it was? Yeah. So we started that. I think that seemed to fizzle out <laughs> Ironically. quickly, but, um, it's funny, the dude that was my accountability buddy, accountability, accountability yeah. buddy, I like to say, um, randomly texted me like two years later and asked me a question. I was like, what's up, man? He's like, oh, sorry, wrong, Matt. I was like, all right, cool. Good catching up with you. But um, yeah, we kind of got connected through that. And it's really cool because um, you're someone I've kind of followed a little bit from a distance for a while. Like, I think it's awesome to see you kind of doing your own thing and you know, going back to the high school, I had no idea what you were going through in high school, um, which probably a lot of people didn't. And it's just, you never really know what someone's going through. And while, you know, I don't really ever remember saying like, this guy looks unapproachable, I'm not going to talk to him. Um, we were just completely separate. And, you know, we we're our own different people. But, you know, I went through stuff in high school, probably not as bad as what you were going through. But, you know, at, I was a kid in high school. I was like, I just wanted people to like me. I wanted to be cool. At the end of the day, I was like a nerd. I was good at school, not that good at sports. But, you know, like I was trying to get girls, not getting girls. I was trying to make friends with the popular kids. I was like on the outskirts of that. And you're just so kind of caught up in your own realm and your own thoughts that you're not really concerned about what's going on with anybody else. So I think it's really cool that we like 
you know, almost a decade later, we can kind of come on here and like, <laughs> yeah. talk about that stuff. And it's made possible by the age of the internet, right? Because, like, realistically, you and I would probably just never see each other again in, like, 20, 30 years ago, and, and people would go their separate ways. But some of my best relationships, like, even Casey, man, I mean, that's one of my best friends at this point. We've done some cool stuff together. And Casey and I had, like, choir together in... um. Uh, high school i sold him some things you know i probably shouldn't have sold them and uh in the form of a brownie so nothing too serious guys but just just saying and uh, that was about the extent of the relationship casey and i had and he's just i mean he's one of the best guys you could ever meet and so he was kind of the one who got this together once he saw me getting some stuff on track and now um i talk to him all the time and so it, it, it is cool how things work out and you know maybe you weren't meant to connect in high school, but then later you guys end up maturing in a similar way. So um, I'm excited to just dive into your story today because similar to how you were talking about uh, following my journey. Now, when I saw your page, I'm like, what? Like there's so much things or so many things going on here because I'm like, one, I just wouldn't have expected you to deal with that. Although, of course, anyone can deal with addiction. But then two, you're like on this other side now looking great, doing awesome. And um, it, you've been through a lot. So let's just even even start with this because from my understanding, and this is the good news, guys, from an audience perspective, I actually only have a surface level understanding right now of what Matt went through. But when I saw it, I'm like, we got to put this on the show. So what actually happened? Because this addiction stuff for you happened like fairly late in life. This is normally something that starts in people's teenage years. And for you, it was a little later. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's funny, if you knew me in high school, I didn't touch a drink or a drug until I was mm -hmm. 17 years old. Um, you know, I thought, it, not that I had like, I was like, oh, it's illegal. I shouldn't do that. But it was more of just like a, a moral <laughs> issue with it where I was like, nah. you know, um, my parents wouldn't like me doing this or something like that. And, you know, I figured I'd have time to explore that later. And eventually my friends kind of got me into it. And I did like a little bit of the partying and stuff when I became like a senior in high school. But, you know, a lot of people that I meet when I go to meetings and stuff like that, like AA meetings are like, dude, I was smoking crack when I was 14 years old. And like my, my dad was handing me beers when I was nine, like stuff like that. And it's just crazy. Cause you know, I don't have the craziest story out there. Like luckily I wasn't homeless or anything like that, but my like window was very small <laughs> for like addiction. I would say like, you know, I, um, I started when I was like 17, 18, I got to college, kind of ramped it up from there. And by 25, I was a full fledged, like non-functioning alcoholic. And I ended up getting see uh, seeking treatment. So it's kind of crazy. Just like that little, like, you know, five to six year span is where okay. it really and just yeah, and, You know, it's so funny because we talk about these things kind of loosely because of how our, I mean, I know other generations certainly have done drugs in high school, but I, I mean, I go into these schools still to this day and like, I do genuinely believe that there is a trend now to be doing these things earlier on a mass level, right? It's not just one or two fringe stories of, of the person yeah, starting or smoking crack at 14, right? Like you're hearing about some serious stuff in these schools. Like these kids in very nice places are doing promethazine or, or Xanax or whatever, and they can't even drive a car legally. And so when we're doing this this early and they're exposed to it this early, it messes up the brain. But my point is, even though it in, in our school, actually, yes, yeah, starting at 17, 18 was somewhat late. Uh, we had a very large graduating class. Like, I mean, there's like 450 to 500 people per graduating class. So that alone could be a reason we never really interacted. You could go through high school and, and miss a name or two for sure. Um, but the other side of it is like, yeah, we had a culture where I don't think 
anyone was doing anything too crazy other than like a very small percentage, but it was normalized, right? Like we go to the football games or basketball games and, and you know, there's kids drunk in the front row, like screaming um, at the other team or whatever. Uh, weed was a huge thing in our school. So it was this moral aspect that kind of kept you from maybe doing that stuff. But um, when you were doing the substances, then was it, was there a mental health aspect to this initially, or was it more just, Hey, I'm experimenting. And then it just got out of hand over time because normally there is a mental health side to this sometimes. Yeah. So I think when I first started, it wasn't ever really a mental health thing. It was just kind of like, I'm excited. Um, you know, I, it, it almost came back to that, like trying to fit in concept where it was like, I can see, I remember like maybe when I was like a sophomore junior and I still wasn't really drinking, I wasn't smoking pot, anything like that, which is all that I touched. Um, throughout high school and for the most part um you know i would come in on monday morning and all my friends at the lunch table are sharing stories about how so and so got so drunk it did this and these two people hooked up and you know it was like dude i just felt so left out of that and i think part of why i finally caved was just like i want to see what this thing that everyone else is doing um and why it seems so exciting you know i want to get invited to those parties I, i felt like I wasn't able to build the friendships with the people that I wanted to build because they were building them outside of these activities that I was taking part in. Um, So that's kind of where that started. And then I don't want to jump ahead too much, but it definitely ended up being a coping mechanism later in my life um, to address some of those mental health problems. And you went to to college, correct? Okay. So that's one of the things for me, like, it's kind of weird. I ended up there was a variety of reasons, but I only went to community college like a semester and a half, dropped out, did my own thing. And for me personally, I'm thankful for that because I wasn't ready to handle college. Like I was doing a lot of the stuff that people were doing in college at 16, 17 years old. And so if I continued that even longer, I mean, I was I was kind of screwed. And so one thing that we should touch on today, because our audience, um, it, it's not exclusive to this, but like 80 percent are between the ages of 35 and, and 44. And we have a lot of women that listen. They have kids, so they need to know what they're kind of going up against here. And I don't want people to be fearing college. That's ridiculous. But how has the landscape ended up at these colleges? Because I feel like partying, like there used to be like the party schools. And now I feel like I can go to any college campus and I can get blacked out drunk all weekend and no one's really there holding me accountable. In fact, I might look like the cool person for that. So is my interpretation of that wrong? Or is that kind of what the landscapes become at these colleges? No, I mean, definitely where I went to, it wasn't the party school, but it was a big party school, Um, you know, and that's kind of where my drinking definitely progressed. It went from like, uh, maybe I'll drink once a month or something when there's a party to like, I'm going out like tequila Tuesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe sometimes Sunday, um, because you can, you know, it's the first time you really get to experience Mm -hmm. life on your own terms um, without someone there telling you what to do. And you know, the schedule kind of caters to that where you can take later classes so you can get hung over, kind of wake up, um, you know, work it off or whatever. Um, but to me, it was just kind of this time of like finding myself doing what I wanted. And there's so many people out there. And the funny thing is, I, I went into college hating fraternities and sororities, and I thought they were the stupidest, most culty, cringy thing ever. And by my second year there, my sophomore year, I ended up joining one just because I wanted to keep partying. Um, cause I moved off campus and I quickly realized within like the first two weeks, I was like, wait, I'm not surrounded by all these connections anymore. I'm kind of out here on my own. So literally I just joined a fraternity so I could have somewhere to party on the weekends. And we used to joke, like 
I would literally say this with my friends. You're not an alcoholic until you graduate Um, because you're because you're in college. You know, it's what you're expected to do. You're expected to drink and get high and do all these things. And I prioritize partying a lot over what I could. I mean, I still graduated, um, you know, like Dean's List honors and stuff like that. But I definitely sacrifice taking some classes or doing things that I would have wanted to do um, just because I wanted to go get drunk with yeah. my buddies. A and lot of so the times. there's this whole culture out there that because I learned this, I actually, if we go back into like the actual DSM, um, which for those that aren't mental health people, it's the diagnostic and statistical manual. So it's how they diagnose mental health conditions. There's a, a distinct difference between substance use disorder and actual addiction. They are two separate things. And what has happened at these colleges a lot of times, I know that you actually dealt with addiction, but what's happened a lot at these colleges is yeah, there's this party plan, five-year party plan, basically, and you had the fifth year, right? Because it takes that long to get out sometimes. And this is <laughs> textbook substance use disorder, but you know, maybe because the person can take a day off once every week, it it wouldn't classify in the normal sense of addiction. And so I don't think people are educated enough on substance use disorder because I always looked at myself even in high school and like, I actually, I didn't meet the criteria of a drug addict. I mean, this sounds so insane to talk about now, like it was normal, but my 16, 17 year old brain rationalized, okay, well, if I only take Xanax for a week and then I take a week off and now I just add alcohol in those days, then I'm not an addict. And by definition, I am not. I really am not. But that's I didn't see the insanity of what I was actually doing there that I'm like swapping drugs out. Oh, and I don't have any of that stuff tonight. So we'll just take a bunch of Benadryl. It's like, what on earth was going through my head with that? So when we classify an actual addiction, we're talking about withdrawal, we're talking about daily need for this. So when did this get to the point where you're realizing that you, oh, wow, I have a problem with this? Sure. So Sure. Just a little bit before that, um, towards the end of my coming to the ends of college, my junior year, I went and studied abroad in Australia. And that was like the easiest course load I ever took. Um, we're there. It's a big drinking city. Um, you know, so I was drinking basically every day for three months, you know, maybe a day or two off here or I'd end up getting sick and I'm like, I got to stop drinking for a couple of days. But, you know, basically for all intents and purposes, drinking every day for three months straight. Um, I came back and I think this is where it really shifts into the mental health aspect is I moved back home for the summer after that semester to pursue an internship. So I was living with my mom. And so I really just stopped drinking. Like I, I ended up being like, I'll go to the bar on Friday or Saturday, but during the week is the work week. I don't drink stuff like this. And I started getting back into the gym. So I was, you know, got to get my protein in and, you know, can't do that if you're drinking. So um, very quickly after that, I started getting like severe anxiety um, to the point where it's like, I didn't want to socialize. Like you could be my best friend and I'm sitting in a room having a conversation with you and I'm nervous to talk to you. Like I'm shaking a little bit. Um, I just feel genuinely uncomfortable and that would happen all the time. You know, it, it, it helped me back at work when I was dealing with clients at work, it helped me back socially. And then it was like the weekend would come and I'd go out and I'm like, all right, I'm going to pregame, get a couple shots of tequila in me, go to the bar. And that's when I finally feel normal again. Um, and I pursued, um, you know, psychiatric help with that for like anxiety and depression. And one of the first things they tried to do for me was uh, put me on Lexapro. And she basically said, I think it was that and maybe um, an MAOI or something like that. 
where she was like, you can't drink on this medication. And I was like, wow, thanks. I'm good. Um, so I literally feeling terrible, you know, five and a half days a week, essentially was less important to me than being able to go out and get drunk with my friends on the weekends. So I turned down the one medication she gave me. I kind of found another medication that was like, we strongly suggest you don't drink on this, but you can. So I was like, I'll, I'll go with that one. And um, that just exacerbated how uh, quickly I would get drunk and how delirious I'd become when I was drunk. And so that's kind of, it, it created this weird chicken and the egg thing. Cause I didn't realize this until I actually genuinely started to seek help a few years later for my drinking was that essentially what happened was I kind of almost kicked myself into like a little bit of a withdrawal. Like I had this crazy anxiety coming off of like this insane period of drinking and I didn't know how to cope with that anxiety until I figured out that I could drink to manage the anxiety. So I was like, I'm drinking and then I'm getting anxious. So I'm drinking more. And it's just this vicious circle that I ultimately found myself unable to really get out of. And so yeah, a couple of years later, it was just this like balancing act of like, I need to be sober so I can perform my daily duties and, but I need to drink to like self-medicate and ultimately like the drinking won that battle. And I just be completely fell out of, you know, I, I lost my job. Um, I was very close to like not being able to pay my, pay my bills. Luckily I had parents that were able to, you know, help me out until I finally accepted that I needed to get the help that I needed to get. But you know, it's, it's just crazy wow. how quickly I can spiral. And, I mean, even that thing with Australia, you know, because I, I can understand the perspective. I really can because you're going out somewhere fun. It's like, I'm not going to do this again, probably maybe ever, let alone anytime soon. And so you're living it up, man. You're having a good time. But I think, and this was always something that bugged me. There's a normalization of alcohol in our society, which somehow gets it into people's heads. Um, I'm not saying you or I'm not saying that this is you. I'm just speaking in general. It gets it into some people's heads that this is not a big deal where most people don't know that alcohol is one of the only drugs in addition to um, the class of drugs called benzodiazepines that the withdrawal itself can kill someone. Right. So people say, oh, no, opiates can do that. No, it can't. The seizures that the opiates cause can uh, kill you, and it's an indirect death. Opiate withdrawal cannot kill you. Benzodiazepines can, and alcohol can, because of it. it's the exact same uh, mechanism. It's something with GABA. And so this is not a joke. I know that I can go to the store right now and get it super cheap as a 27-year-old male. And so we think, well, how big of a deal can it be, right? But I, for better or for worse, this has been totally normalized, and I, I don't think this is necessarily the first drug i would normalize if i if i had the choice to do that i don't know if i would necessarily normalize any of them at this point in my life but that's besides the point so it's easy enough to think like all right i'm young i'm having fun right now i'm in freaking australia this is cool shit and so i'm just gonna go do this stuff for three months and then yeah all of a sudden i have a problem now i'm not asking this next question to um you know condemn you because i i had my things, like I mentioned in high school with the Xanax for one week and then off for one week where it seems logical at the time. And then you realize looking back that this was a deluded mindset when you, because you said three years later, almost it was when you got some actual help. So when you went in for this anxiety and then took the medication that would allow you to drink to some degree, were you even connecting yet that alcohol was a problem or was this just like, oh, okay, I still want to drink. So I'm going to take this medication. Um, it's, it's weird because I couldn't admit it to myself, but I knew it was almost like the kid getting caught with his hand in the cookie jar 
where like he's kind of embarrassed. He knows what's the problem, okay. but he doesn't at the same time. Whereas like I would go in and I would talk to like a doctor. I went to several and they're asking me like how much I drink. And immediately in my head, I'm like, I probably drink more than I should, but I don't have a problem. I just, you know, I, they won't get it. They're 40 years old, 50 years old. I'm 21, 22, 23. That's mm-hmm. what I'm supposed to do. So immediately I'm like, all right, whatever I think I drink, I'm going to cut that in half. So say I think I'm drinking maybe like, we'll call it six drinks a day, probably 10 to 12 on the weekend, something like that. Um, so over 50 drinks a week, I would say. I mean, like I drink 20, maybe 20 to 25 a week. And then she would look at me and say, that's say, a yeah. lot. We should cut back on that. So I'm half of what I'm actually drinking is what I'm being told is a lot. And so it's just this weird thing where it's like, you don't want to listen to this authoritative person at such a young age and you can't believe that you have a problem. And one of the things that I kind of gravitated to really quickly is like the stigma against addiction. And I think we're getting a lot better at it as a society. But the things that kind of held me back from admitting that I had that problem was I didn't think that I was the type of person that could have one. And we were kind of talking about this before the show, which was it can happen to anybody. It could happen to doctors, lawyers, um, doesn't matter where you're from. And I was like, dude, I went to a good high school both my parents love me. They're divorced, but they both still love me. Um, I have a good family around me. I have a lot of friends. I have a good edu- I have a you know secondary education in the form of college. I had a good job at the time. Um, I'm smart, and it's crazy. One of my things was I'm smarter hmm. than alcohol, so I thought that I could beat it. Um, I didn't think that because to me, if I couldn't admit that. If I admitted that alcohol was stronger than me, then I was a loser. I was a failure. I was weak-minded because I thought that I had to be able to come up with a way that I could successfully drink. And whether that was switching to beer from hard liquor or we're going to take the week off and only drink on the weekends or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. We're only going to drink when we're with people, not when I'm by myself. Um, That failed every time. Every single time it led to me being back by myself drinking in my room till I was blackout drunk and then waking up in the middle of the night. And the first thing I'd reach for was that beer can or that liquor bottle just so I can get something back in me. And, um, all this really just COVID the the quarantine really just perpetuated this. And when I first got sober, I was like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for COVID COVID made me an alcoholic. And I'm actually kind of great. I don't want to say I'm grateful for COVID because that gets into a whole another thing, but I'm grateful for, that what I took from COVID because even though it kind of destroyed a year of my life, I think it just brought to forefront in a really, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the word would be, but in a really like rapid way, you know, I think it took what would have been a progressive disease throughout my twenties, possibly into my thirties and put it into this like little incubator for me to just really marinate and like get all my problems out in this like one year time frame And, I think it probably saved me from wasting the next 10 years of my life battling a disease that, you know, I was kind of able to cut short. Well, that's actually, right yeah, there. that's a good part about this. And by the way, on a side note, I completely respect the the realness of this because I know that this is still a, a relatively new thing for you. But this is what works on this show and other shows, just people being honest, because then again, 
since you don't, you know, have that stereotypical thing, right, that society puts out of like uh, addiction or whatever, it makes people realize, oh, this does happen. I always just say we have the stereotypical things that you see in movies or on the news or whatever for addiction or other things. I'm like, no, the other people are just better at hiding it. Right. <laughs> the, the prevalence is still there amongst all groups. And and you're right. We were talking about it before the show, because I'm like, even if even if I want to believe that the people in the functional health world are somehow immune to this, I know that that's just, again, my own ignorance promoting the stigma. There is someone that listens to our show right now that is dealing with addiction and they might call themselves a functional health practitioner, seem as healthy as can be, and they're struggling and they need to hear this. And certainly they're going to be working with clients that might be struggling with this stuff sometimes because that comes up. So um, yeah, I'm not I'm not glad that you experienced it, but I'm glad overall that it, it did put it into this incubator, as you described, and progressed it a little more rapidly while still keeping you safe enough to be here today. Because then, yeah, you, you waste a, a really significant year of your life, but then you don't kind of like half waste the other 10 years. And I think we all have those moments if we've abused substances or been addicted to them. I remember when I was on probate, I was on probation using drugs still. And I was on house arrest at one point using drugs still. And I just sat there because I had a, a terrible night with um my high school girlfriend the night before. And I was just such a jerk to her. And I sat there in my bed in the morning. I'm like, what is the plan? Because you're on probation using fairly hard drugs like benzodiazepines. Like you're going to die or you're going to go to jail. And I think sometimes we need the more extreme situations like it sounds you went through um, to have those moments where we're like, what is going on here? Like this, I can't ignore this anymore. It's just so in your face that you kind of have to accept that you have a problem. Um, I want to go back a second because I appreciate also what you said about being in the doctor's office and you kind of knew that you had an issue, but right, we're putting it on the back burner because this is something that needs to be called out for people. If you asked Evan Transu at 17 years old, hey, do you think it's a smart idea to be taking Xanax for one week and then not again the next week? I would have said no, right? But we're in our own heads. And when we're abusing substances, I always say we're not thinking 10 years ahead. We're thinking 10 minutes ahead, right? So just as quick as that thought comes, it gets dismissed. We sometimes, not always, but sometimes need a third party to come in and say, do you think that's okay? And it seems so simple, but um, that can be the power of psychotherapy. They do a lot of stuff, but sometimes that can just be the power is having someone looking in front of us and saying, do you think that's smart, uh, Matt? Or, hey, that's a lot. And you know, in the back of your head that you're you're lying about the amount by 50%, right? That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, over that, and it, it's just at, at some points in your life, mm-hmm. you're just not ready to hear things. And, you know, both of us were so young and it's funny because if you wrote out everything that you were doing on a piece of paper and you put it in like an envelope and then someone gave it to you and said, look at this person and see what they're doing. Does this seem like a healthy lifestyle? Like, you know, whether they're abusing Xanax or like they're going like I was going through like almost a case of beer a day. And it's funny, like I didn't think I had this problem yet. Like I couldn't go to the same beer store that I went to on Monday because I thought the little Mexican lady might recognize me. And I had just bought like a case of beer. So I was like, I have to go to this store so they don't connect the dots and think that like, why are you drinking so much? You just bought 30 beers yesterday. And it was like, I was like afraid the trash guy would think I was an alcoholic. So I would like space out how much trash I was throwing out throughout the week and like all these things. But I still can't just fundamentally admit to myself that I have a problem, even though I know what I'm doing is insane. I think what happens is, again, it's that whole 10 minutes versus 10 years mentality. And I don't want to say we lose our self-awareness, but 
because that would almost make it seem justified or excusable. But that is kind of the experience that I had. And it sounds very similar to what you're saying. It's like, it's like your self-awareness is a little foggy. I guess I'll, I'll put it that way, you know, because again, if someone were to come to you and ask these questions, I think any reasonable person, even if they lied to their face would still instantly know, okay, no, this is bad. But when you're focused on the substance and the substance alone, that's it. It's like, how do I get this? What do I need to do to get it? How do I, you know, how do I get more of it? How do I get away with using it so other people don't know? How am I hiding from the woman that, you know, might see me buy another uh, case of beer today? You you don't even have time sometimes to think about, oh, wait, this is just bad, right? I, I have a problem. I have an issue here. So I don't know. Um, I think we kind of got to it. I don't know if there's anything more that we need to elaborate on. So what was the actual moment, though, where we talked about it from a general perspective, so forgive me if I missed it, but I feel like there's probably a more specific moment where yeah. you realize like, okay, like crap, something's going wrong here sometime during the pandemic. So was there a more specific moment where you're like, yeah, this needs to stop or, or what happened? So there's a couple like events in my mind that I kind of remember significantly. Um, the first one was I was going through. So right before the pandemic, my girlfriend dumped me. I went into the pandemic. I was depressed. I was lonely. Um, I felt isolated. All those things that everyone felt during that period of time. And that only really gave me an excuse to drink more and more. Um, so that just kept escalating. Uh, I got put on notice from my job. I cleaned up my act for a couple of weeks. Then I was like, nah, I'm good. And I just went right back to drinking again, missing work, stuff like that. I got fired. And then sometime around like right before Christmas, um, I just felt absolutely miserable. And it was like, I'm, I know you've dealt with mental health struggles. I'm not sure if I can't remember if you've ever kind of like contemplated like the suicide nature of things before. Um, And it was like, I'm not sure if I was serious or if I just wanted attention, but I reached out to my ex-girlfriend and I basically told her like, I can't do this anymore. I want to kill myself. And it was like, I don't know if I genuinely felt like I wanted that or I just wanted someone to see me. Um, But she reached out to my parents, obviously, which I got mad at her for doing. But, you know, what normal human wouldn't do that? And I'm grateful for that. So my sister kind of paid me a visit. They tricked me into going to a psyche val at a hospital, which, you know, I knew all the right things to say that they couldn't keep me there. Um, You know, I knew to say that I wasn't suicidal. I didn't have a problem X, Y, Z. So they're like, all right, you're free to go. You're discharged. Um, I went home and my mom was like, they still didn't really know exactly what I was doing, but I think they were slowly starting to put the pieces together of like why I had just been such an absent person over the last couple of years and why I always looked terrible every time they saw me or, you know, stuff like that. And my mom got me home and she said, she's like, I think you need to stop drinking. And I was like, for like the rest of the week or and she's like no like forever and i literally said i was like you're fucking high like because i i thought that was insane and to anyone going through stuff just the idea that you have to quit forever is such a daunting idea you know it's like i can't i'll quit today but i don't know what next week looks like or next year like dude i i remember everyone I had the same thought. It's funny when you get to rehab and everyone says the same things that you always think, which is how you know you're in the right place. Um, And mine was like, I can quit for now. But like, what happens when I get married? I can't have a glass of champagne at my wedding. And like, I've heard five other people say that um, since I've thought that. And it's just how crazy an idea is that it's like, you're telling me I'd be getting married. I'm living this awesome life with this woman that I love. 
And my biggest concern is that I can't have a glass of champagne at my own wedding. Like it's, it's crazy. The delusions that you tell yourself, but, um, you know, so I quit drinking right around when my mom said that that was like the beginning of January. I was able to put it down. I kind of stayed with them for a couple of weeks and then I went back, started living at my own place in Philadelphia again. And I remember I took, I was kind of going in and out, in and out. I took a week on and then I sober up a little bit. And I remember just saying, I wrote a journal entry. Like I took like five days off drinking. I was like, I feel so much healthier. I feel better. I feel clear headed, blah, 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 blah. And that was on a Friday. And I said, all right, I'm going to get a box of wine and I'm going to drink one glass as like a reward to myself for being able to stay sober for this week. Like I deserve it. It's Friday. And I literally do not remember the next two weeks of my life. Um, I hope I cracked that box of wine. I had one led to another and I don't remember what happened for two weeks. Um, it turns out I like was avoiding my family, blew it off, blah, blah, blah. And I finally got a phone call from my mom and she said, I'm really worried about you. I don't know what's going on with you, but like, I need to come see you. And I, I don't even really remember this conversation. I think I was probably like half drunk, half whatever. And, um, I, I guess she told me later cause I, I thought she was the one that dragged my ass to rehab, but I was actually the one that said, I need help. I think I was just at such a low rock bottom and I was tired of just lying to everyone around me that I just said, I need help. I can't stop drinking. I don't know what I'm doing. I've tried. I've tried everything and it's not working. And, you know, both my parents are amazing people. They quickly found a rehab to take me to. They came down and like the the last like it's funny. People talk about like I've heard people say your last pain point. It's when my parents walked into my house and they walked into my room who I had a roommate, by the way, who had no idea I was an alcoholic. Like, that's how good at hiding this shit I was overall was I would go to the store. I'd like immediately just run right into my room and put the beer in my room. You know, I would take the trash out when he was sleeping, stuff like that. So like, you know, because I couldn't let other people know what was going on. And this this kid who's one of my best for you actually know him. His name's Charles. Um he was one of my best friends since high school. He had no idea what was going on with me. Um, and my parents walked in my room and saw what an absolute just dumpster fire of a war zone my room was. Like beer cans everywhere. Just, you know, just a disaster. And my mom broke down crying. And my dad gave me like one of the most disappointed looks he's ever given me in my life. Where it's just like, hmm. where did I go wrong? It's like, what did, how did I fail this person? And like, what are you doing with your life? And that was really just the last thing that I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I can't do this to the people that I love. And that's really, that's what kicked me off. And, you know, the whole journey just kind of escalated from there. I still didn't think I was going to want to be or get sober or stay sober, but I just kind of kept doing what people told me to do. And, you know, I'm not a religious person, but they talk about your higher power and stuff. And I really just put my life in the hands of other people at that point, because clearly what I was doing wasn't working. Yeah. And that's fair enough, right? Because I mean, actually, ironically, I've moved more religious as I've gotten older, but it, it doesn't matter. The, this idea of giving to something else makes sense because, yeah, we come to these realization points. I think anyone that uses stuff where it was like what I was talking about before my plan is not working. Like objectively speaking, this is failing miserably. So at some point we got to give this up to someone else. Now I still need to take responsibility. I'm the one who takes the actions, but I I need some insight elsewhere. Um, A a few things here. One, I want to go back to 
I'm not a mental health professional in the traditional sense, right? Because I'm just a speaker and stuff. But one thing that you mentioned was this idea of maybe you were just seeking attention when you talked about the suicidal aspect. To me, that doesn't matter. Even if you were, the point is the attention is not narcissistic attention seeking. It's attention to like indirectly or directly say, hey, I need help. I need to be seen in that way. So I, I, for whatever that's worth to you, because I feel like that's what my suicidal ideations were at the time. Like, I don't I don't know that I ever was like, OK, I'm going to go do this. But I didn't know how else to express how much pain I was in, especially as a man. And so I was just like, all right. Again, I don't think it was a thought process, but if I say this, everyone will know this is serious and, you know, we can kind of hopefully do something about this. You're kind of waiting for someone to come in and save you in a sense. One thing I, I got to touch on, Matt, because you talked about a few things here, is there was this absent side to you in, in your family life. Uh, but you also even said you were really good at hiding this. So I don't know what the answer is here, but I look at like alcohol. I'm like, that's a hell of a drug, man. One, it smells. The person is going to literally, this is true, guys, like sweat alcohol out of their pores at a certain point. So you can smell it on their sweat. Certainly you can smell it on their breath. And then you would think just by the behaviors, despite how much of a tolerance you might build, I mean, you'd think that you notice someone drunk, maybe I don't know too many people who have struggled with solely alcohol, so I could be wrong. But is there any advice out there to people that might believe someone else in their life is addicted? Like what would have been some of the warning signs if you have any um, other than just maybe being absent from the family? So I'm, I'm trying to think in terms of warning signs. I mean, obviously, if the person is like visibly drunk, and visibly drunk often, that might be a warning sign. But outside of that, you know, like I knew that if I had to drive an hour to go see my mom, obviously I had to sober up. And there's a lot of times that I couldn't. Um, I would say I got to go see my mom at five o'clock. So I need my last beer to be at 12. So I can sober up for three hours enough to drive and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, I can have one more beer at one o'clock and I finish that beer. All right, one forty-five. let's have another one. And then by the time it's the time I was supposed to leave, I have to admit like, I can't do this. And then I'm shooting her a text saying, Hey, I'm so sorry. I got a flat tire or, you know, something like I came up with every excuse in the book. It was snowing. I got a flat tire. Um, you know, I got called into work, like whatever it was. And that's like one of the things is like, that's a great warning sign is someone is consistently flaking on you. Um, you know, you make these plans and they just don't show up and they don't really have a valid reason or like every time it's, it's like, dude, if you're ever, uh, if you're ever at work and there's that one person that's like always calling in sick or they, you know, they had three relatives die this month or something like that. Like, you're kind of like, what is going on with this person, dude? Like, clearly they don't want to be here and more, more likely, more than likely they right. just genuinely don't want to be there. But there is the, the chance that, you know, they just can't they just can't show up for whatever reason because they're struggling with something. And for me, it was like, I'm not sober enough to drive. Or even if I thought I could drive or whatever, how I, someone could come pick me up, I'll be like, no, I'm way too wasted to be functional right now. So I had to really pick and choose my battles of where I could be. But in the event that I did show up sober, um, I was probably shaking, um, probably like visibly anxious and obviously didn't look great or well-maintained. Um, I know a lot of people when they struggle with alcoholism end up gaining weight. For me, it was the opposite. I lost yeah, I a lot of weight because I just, I, I just wasn't eating. Um, I would go anywhere from like a day to, I think the most I ever hit was like probably four or five days, a couple of times, like literally just not eating. 
Um, all my caloric intake was coming from alcohol. And that was just, it started as laziness um, or me just like drinking until I wasn't hungry anymore. And then by like the last couple of days, it was like, I might try to eat something. And like the most bland thing, like a piece of bread or like ramen noodles were repulsive to me. Like the idea of putting something in my stomach was like nauseating because my entire digestive system was just screwed at that point. Um, So, you know, there's warning signs, like whether they're drunk or whether they're sober. And, you know, I guess it obviously depends on the drug too. Like if they're doing something, maybe like cocaine, or they always sneaking away to the bathroom or something like that. Um, But there's definitely warning signs for everything. And I I showed all of them. I think the people around me just didn't know the book part of it. Yeah, there's an expectation factor, right? Because just like you had this uh, stereotype against yourself, oh, I can't deal with this. I'm sure they actually might suffer from the same stereotype. Like they're not expecting this to happen. And um, I mean, I know it shocked me, right? And we didn't know each other that well, but I was just, I was surprised to see that. I'm like, okay, like I just saw this guy a few years ago. And technically speaking, I guess, I mean, that was September 2019. So you, you were probably struggling with this to some degree at that point, right? It was kind of, I wouldn't say, I don't know the exact timeline, but it was probably in a phase where I was just partying a lot, but I was able to kind of go out and be that you know, functional person. But on the weekends, it was my priority. I think, um, you know, I ended up moving to Philly. Yeah, actually, that's right around the time I moved to Philly. Um, I was dealing with kind of like in a, a, I don't want to say abusive, but just like a toxic relationship at that time, like very emotionally draining. And I think that gave me an excuse to want to drink. Um, and then we broke up and that gave yeah. me an excuse to want to drink even more. Um, but yeah, just kind of a, th- a theme of my life has always been kind of that independence is not good for me all the time. It's like, I went to college, I started drinking more. I came back, I lived at home, I stopped drinking as much. I got my own place, I started drinking more. All these things, it's just like, if you leave me alone, I'll find a way to screw okay, it up. Got it. So it sounds like, I mean, could be wrong, but it sounds like the treatment side of things went fairly well once you were willing to commit to a real program there. So uh, for those that might be listening and actively dealing with this and they're intimidated by this, um, what what did that look like? Like, did you go, I, I think you went to an actual facility, you said, right? And I mean, how, how did that go? Yep. Yeah. So I did 30 days in like a full residential uh, rehab. I did, I think like five days of detox. Luckily, my detox wasn't too bad. Um, there are people who get it really bad, especially I have friends that are, you know, heroin or fentanyl users. They were detoxing for three out of the four weeks that they were there. Um, luckily with me, it maybe took like two or three days to fully be detoxed and then another week for me to kind of feel like a normal, like I have energy kind of person again. Um, my first night there, I got there in the middle of the night. I think I got checked in and everything at like midnight. They put me in a room with some dude who was like passed out for like a week straight coming off of meth. And I almost had a panic attack my first night there because it was up north around like the Pocono area. And my parents just kind of dropped me there and they're like, all right, well, good luck, you know. And I felt like I had just been committed to like a jail sentence. Um, Obviously, I could walk out the door at any time, but. I wanted to be there. I just sure. felt so scared and so alone at that point, even though I was surrounded by some people. But um, after that, it took me a few days to kind of get in the swing of things. And then I just decided I was going to embrace the program. Um, I started making friends there. And I've always been kind of one that's like, I'm shy to warm up at first. But once I get going, um, <laughs> I'll talk a lot. And so I was kind of by 
by the end of my stay there, I was kind of becoming a leader in the community, stuff like that. And then my parents wanted me to go to extended care. And I was like, no, I just did 30 days. I'm cured. I'm fine. Still in the back of my mind, like I'll go home and I'll probably drink in like three months or something like that. So this is kind of like where I said, just putting my life in the hands of other people. I was like, I'll go do the extended care. So I went down to uh, another place. I did. I told him I would do two weeks in like a partial hospitalization, like housing program. Two weeks went by super fast. I was like, eh, I'll do, I'll do the month. I did the month, turned in the six weeks. And then I stepped down to an IOP program, which is like an outpatient program where I'm living in their housing three times a week. I did two months of that. I did the general outpatient, which was like two times a week. Um, for a couple more months, I ended up becoming the house manager of the house that I was living in. Um, and I just, I, dude, I stuck with it. And now part-time on the side might actually end up turning into full-time. Nice. I'm working at the treatment center that I went to. So it's just this crazy thing where it's like, I never thought that I would be here. And I just kind of kept going with the punches. You know, I just kept doing what people told me to do, even though I didn't want to do it. And eventually I was like, I actually kind of like it here, dude. Like, I'm you know, so it, it really wasn't that scary once I kind of just embraced the program. But, um, you know, I have no doubt that I had I not continued past the 30 days in rehab, wow. I wouldn't be sober. Right OK, now. and that and that matters because statistically speaking, and I don't mean to discourage anyone, you know, keep trying different things. But statistically speaking, it is less probable than not that someone will not stay sober after those 30 days. So that's what I was about to ask you and you beat me to it. Like, did you feel that staying for a long period of time um, in these different facilities, different facilities, but still nonetheless, you stayed that ended up being a huge aspect for you. So yeah, I always felt like I'm like, how, especially for some people, like you're talking about individuals that again, might've been doing crack and stuff in, in ninth grade, how or nine years old, whatever it was, how on earth are you supposed to just fix things in 30 days? I mean, that just seems unrealistic to me. I don't even think your brain's rewired by that. <laughs> so that's the thing is like rehab, I believe, is meant to get you sober and kind of start the ball rolling on staying sober. But the extended care, which studies have shown, you know, doing 90 plus days gives you like a I don't know what the number is, but a much better chance of staying sober for at least a year than just doing 30 days in a rehab program. Um, that partial hospitalization or those outpatient programs teach you how to live sober. Because the thing is, it's I don't want to say it's easy to get sober, but you can get sober, but it's way harder to stay sober. It's like if you have a bad day, if you have like some sort of trigger or you just get bored, any whatever it is, you can easily go out and get drunk, get high. Um, it's getting that. And the thing is when I got sober and I got to the point where it was like, okay, go out and get a job. Now I had zero confidence in myself, um, because I hadn't worked in a little bit. The last job I had, I was screwing up. I was slacking off. I had zero. And again, this is someone who six months, a year ago was like, dude, I have a bachelor's degree. You know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I, I can take on the world. And all of a sudden it's like, all right, go get a job at, you know, Wawa. And I don't feel capable of doing these things. Um, so it's just like these little baby steps and training wheels to help you show that you can get back on the right track in life. And since then, you know, I was a general manager in an LA fitness. Um, I got my personal training certification. I work in treatment, dude, I'm balancing like three jobs right now. That's besides the point. Um, I've again, gotten that confidence back where I can, you know, pursue what I want to pursue in life and I'm capable and qualified to do these things. And it's like, 
that that's where that's the advantage of these like extended care treatment programs is like we're going to help you get back on the right track and you're going to get used to living at home or in this environment that's like a little sheltered but we're slowly going to introduce you back into the world because a lot of people dude you can get out of rehab but the second you drive by a liquor store you're screwed you know because you want to you want to go in there and everything you just worked on for the last 30 minutes is immediately out the window and you need to learn how to cope with that in like a real life situation. Absolutely. And again, I mean, I just, I give you so much props for the transformation and, and giving people some hope because alcohol in particular, like this is, I'm, I'm thinking about this more and more because a lot of the friends that I knew that struggled with addiction, it was, it was different types of drugs, put it that way. And I'm realizing, yeah, like at least, at least when they left treatment, they know, okay, I got to go down to Philly now. I got to go on the block. I'm dealing with some super dangerous people. Most likely I got to carry a substance that's illegal all the way back to my place. And though, and although it would be unrealistic for someone to find you in your place, like they can't just come in your house, I'm still doing something illegal. There is nothing illegal about driving mostly sober, right? I mean, you have to be under the legal limit, but driving to the liquor store or walking, buying it, going home and getting blacked out drunk every day. It's a it's a bad decision, nothing illegal about it. So I'm like, wow, this is even even tougher thinking from that perspective that, you know, again, a lot of these people battle like the legal side. Like, I don't want to be popping Xanax because I know, all right, well, I could go to jail for this too. Like there's many motivating factors. The only motivating factor for you is this, is this will to say, Hey, I want to live a a better life, right? Because it's cheap and easy to get. So uh, huge props there. What are you doing with, and I know we're getting a little close to time. So uh, please take as much time as you need for this answer, because I'm curious, what are you doing with this sober lifestyle guy? I don't know if we want to call it a brand or what, but um, what's awesome about Matt guys is Matt isn't hopping on today like most of the people and not that there's anything wrong with this people have businesses but matt's not even offering anything other than hope but he has a page called sober lifestyle guy so i'm wondering what is that and what is your hope for it sorry is this when you said matt's not even offering anything that's just sounded like no yeah, yeah i mean business <laughs> right like what value do you yeah. have to provide for us but no I, I know what you're saying it was just funny um genuinely i'm just trying to build this brand from the ground up you know i think um we kind of touched on this before, but this the stigma is getting better in the world about addiction and stuff like that. But I think there's a lot of people, particularly younger people, that just aren't able to like embrace their demons. And for me, like when I first got s- sober, there was so much shame involved. And then like I slowly started reaching out to people that were in my life, my friends and stuff like that. And I was blown away that every single person in my life was nothing but encouraging. They're like, good for you, man. That's awesome. I'm proud of you. Let me know if you need anything where I thought I was going to be getting these texts back. Like, dude, what is going on with you? You're a loser. How are you an alcoholic? Like stuff like that. And it's just like, I'm so grateful for the people in my life that they were able to do that for me. But also it just showed there's nothing really to be embarrassed about. Um, And one of the ways I cope is just through humor. So, dude, I'll be at work and, you know, like something will happen. I'll be like, that's it. I'm going to the liquor store. You know, like everyone around me knows my story and what I do, and I'm not afraid to make jokes about it, you know, like stuff like that. And I don't like, I think if I take it too seriously, then it's just a bad thing for me. So I like to make light of it. And part of me making light of it is just creating this brand of just saying, hey, I did this thing. And if you resonate with this, then come join me and you know, we, we can do this together. So eventually, maybe if it catches on, I will end up offering something. But right now, I'm just trying to create some content and you know, see if there's a see if there's a market out there. So, guys, for it. please, I'll have that in the show notes. Um, give them a, a follow just for support. I mean, so many of us are entrepreneurs out there doing our own thing, and and all of us. This is so, certainly true. 
the people in the functional world were, were starting from passions, right? Just like you. So whether or not it's a completely different situation is fine, but we're all starting from passions. So it'd just be really cool if you showed him some support. Uh, Matt, my final question for you today, and I'm going to reword it a little bit because normally, again, we might have functional medicine doctors hopping on and I'll ask like if they could get every single person in the world to do one thing for their health, uh, what's the thing that they would get them to do? Uh, But I'd like to switch that a little bit today. And what I want to make the question is if I could give you a magic wand and you could wave it and get every single person who is struggling with with um, addiction to get uh, like get them to do one thing. What is the one thing that you'd get all the addicted people to do other than the obvious? <laughs> so I think sure I have two things kind of for this. One is reach out. You need to talk to people. You can't do this alone. You have to talk to people and you have to talk about what you're going through. And that's if you already know that you have a problem. You know, if you're struggling, there's always resources out there for places and people that can help you. The other thing that I would say is if you're someone that was kind of like me, where it's like, I don't have a problem, make a deal with yourself or better yet, make a deal with somebody because they'll hold you accountable and you won't hold yourself accountable, which is say you're struggling with alcohol. All right, tonight, go home, open one beer and drink that beer or go to the bar and drink that one beer. Can you stop at that one beer? And if you can't stop, if you say you the second you take that sip and you say, ah, screw it, I'll have another one. That's probably a pretty good sign that you have a problem because you made this contract or this deal with yourself. And immediately the second you had that one drink, everything about that just seemed not important anymore you probably have a substance problem. Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Again, it's a unique topic on this show, but one that, again, is needed no matter what industry you're in. So I appreciate it, man. And congratulations on everything. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me.